You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3, looking at the first 13 verses there. We're continuing to walk through 1 Timothy, and <coughs> thankful to have opportunity to um, preach through this book with you, having done the first sermon, and then um, Daniel 2, and then Andrew 2, and now I'm back for 2, and uh, then we rotate out again. Uh, but soon, and very soon, uh, Daniel will be preaching and continuing uh, this series through for us and taking us on into the future, so we rejoice over that. But we're going to look at the first 13 verses, so if you have your Bible open, read along with me. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to, to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. <laughs> Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must, also, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified, the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we do ask that you would give us wisdom. Lord, that you would open our hearts uh, to hear and to receive your word, God, that your truth uh, would do exactly what you promised it would do. It would pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, that it would expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, that you would call us uh, to deeper repentance, deeper faith and trust in Christ. May our eyes be turned from ourselves this morning, and may they be turned to see the greatness and the glory of Christ Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is truly a book of uh, preparation for Timothy. I talked about how Timothy, like Titus, is this unique uh, person within church history. He's not technically a pastor in the way that you and I would think of pastors. He's not shepherding one local congregation, but rather he's a personal representative of the Apostle Paul as he ministers there in Ephesus. And he's encouraged, as we saw from uh, Pastor Ralph a, a week or two ago, he's encouraged to remain in Ephesus, to stay there and to do the hard work of laboring for the gospel in that city, a city which would be a, a city of great uh, kind of, not confusion, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, excitement, right? Uh, it's the, it's the, Ephesus was the, the leading city in Asia, a major port, a happening town in common tongue, right? It's the place to be. Things are going on there. There's much trade going on. Uh, there's a great influx and flow of people through Ephesus, and so there's a great influx and flow of ideas, including religious ideas that are moving in and through Ephesus. And so this young, fledgling church, right? The church is not that old and yet already uh, beset and attacked by false teachers and false gospels and false preaching. And so Timothy here as uh, an associate of Paul, one being trained by Paul and equipped by Paul, is to remain there and to labor for the good of the church. And so what, much of what Paul is writing uh, to Timothy is meant to uh, give Timothy instruction. 
Uh, and not just Timothy, but we said in the introduction to this series, the church as well. While this is a personal correspondence between Paul and Timothy, I don't think it's a personal correspondence quite like uh, the letter of Philemon. I think there was intention that this letter would be made known to the church as a whole, uh, because in a lot of ways it gives information and instruction to the church as well as to how they are to live and behave and to organize themselves. As we look at our passage this morning, what the Apostle Paul is doing is Paul is giving uh, Timothy instruction concerning two um, roles, or, or we would say offices, uh, that are to function within the church uh, that have the, their focus as both leading and serving the body. Uh, as we look at these verses, Paul not only informs Timothy of the manner of men who should lead and serve, but he also, infor he also informs the church uh, by way of instruction uh, as to the type of men that they should follow. Uh, one of the things that becomes very clear as we think about biblical leadership is that biblical leaders are meant to set examples. Uh, Arnie just read that from 1 Peter chapter 5. And so Paul is giving the church uh, not only instruction on kind of what men are fit for these roles, but also the type of men that they should follow, the examples that should be set before them in which they should walk. Now, as we look at this text, I have three uh, things that I want to accomplish this morning, Lord willing, three, three goals that I want to accomplish. Uh, the first is I want us to look at these individual offices as Paul presents them here in the text and gather some understanding of their unique roles and responsibilities within the local church. Uh, secondly, I want to consider the necessity of these offices uh, for the local church. And then lastly, and really where I hope to give the bulk of our, our time this morning, is to look at the qualifications that Paul gives for these two offices and understand uh, that they not only challenge leaders of the church to live in a Christ-like way, but they challenge the church as a whole to live and to pursue a Christ-like character. So these exhort or the, the qualifications that Paul gives and the exhortation that Paul is giving is not limited to those who fill these roles, but I would argue extends to us as followers of Christ that we are encouraged uh, to live in a Christ-like way and to pursue Christ-like character. Now, um, I did mention that I, I I feel like I've been gone for a while. I, I, I have that feeling. I don't know that I have been gone because time, I, I just saw on NPR that time is an illusion. I don't know if you guys saw that recently, but time is an illusion. So who knows how long I've been gone, which is awesome. Actually, too, if you're a preacher, time is an illusion. So who, I, that clock means nothing. It might as well have ABC on it uh, because I can go as long as I want to. Uh, and you can't say boo because I've been gone for a while, too. So let's just, let's just agree to buckle up. Uh, not pay attention to the clock. There's no fellowship meal. I'm not keeping you from anything. And let's just get into this text together, all right? So the first here, Paul in this passage, uh, verses 1 through 13, he, he defines two offices uh, or, or roles or functions that are to, have, uh, that are to be in play uh, in the local church, each with unique responsibilities. As we look at verses 1 through 7, Paul addresses the office of overseer, and then in 8 through 13, Paul addresses the office of deacon. Now, it is true that throughout the history of the church, um, there have been different understandings and kind of applications of these two roles. Uh, but one thing that is consistent is that these two roles are there. Uh, these two roles are presented and these two roles were present uh, from the very beginnings of the early church down to today. So we want to consider first the role of overseer. As we look at verses 1 through 7, Paul introduces this office of overseer, and we quickly learn that overseer is a position of leadership within the church, right? That should be clear from the very title that Paul uses here, right? To be an overseer is to oversee something, right? One can't be an overseer if there's nothing to oversee. One can't provide oversight if they don't have something to which 
they are to provide oversight for. Now, Paul, outside of Timothy, he uses this word in two other places in his writings. Uh, he uses it in his introduction to the church in Philippi. So that in Philippians 1.1, we read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And then he uses it in his pastoral letter to Titus in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now, what we find as we consider the, whole, the, the use of this word throughout the New Testament is that this word is used in the New Testament interchangeably with a term that we tend to be more familiar with here, and that is the word elder. Uh, we see that in two places in particular. We see it in Titus chapter 1, and we see it in Acts 20. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul commands Titus to appoint elders in every city. In fact, he says to him, this is why I left you in Crete. I left you in Crete so that you would go and you would appoint elders in every city. And then as we already saw in verse 7, Paul speaks of the qualifications of an overseer. He says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So it's clear in Titus chapter 1, I don't think Paul is speaking to two different roles or functions within the church, but instead is referring to the same role, or he'd say the same office, that of overseer or elder. I think this is further confirmed as we go to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus to come and meet him. And so Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he knows he's going there to face trial. He knows this is probably the last time he will see these brothers in Ephesus. And so he calls them to himself, and he begins to exhort them and to encourage them to continue in the ministry in which they have, uh, using himself as an example to them. He says, you know how I, I exhorted you day and night with tears. I pled and I taught and I took nothing from you. And, and Paul's speech to these elders of Ephesus uh, reaches a climax of sorts in verse 28. So that where uh, in, in Acts 20, 28, Pauli, Paul, Pauli, <laughs> Paul strongly exhorts the elders by saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So twice in Titus and in Acts, uh, the word overseer is used in this seamless conjunction with the word elder. Right, so the conclusion that we can draw from the New Testament is that an overseer is an elder, which in turn is a leader or a pastor over the congregation. This helps us to better understand what the responsibilities of an overseer are. Right? In short, overseers or elders are called to lead the church. Or we could say probably more biblically, they are called to shepherd the congregation. Uh, we saw Peter say this in 1 Peter chapter 1 there that Arnie read from this morning. They are called to care for, to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Of course, this whole entire imagery of sheep and flock, shepherd and flock, runs through the whole of God's revelation. We heard it from Ezekiel chapter 34 where God calls out the shepherds of Israel. And then I really wanted to read that whole chapter, and maybe we should have read that whole chapter, because if you know that chapter, it's absolutely beautiful what God says. What does he say? He says, therefore, I, I will shepherd my sheep. I will come and shepherd and care for my people. And so this idea of the people of God being his sheep and God himself being a shepherd runs throughout the whole of the scriptures. And so we see in the New Testament that God has appointed what we would call under shepherds who have the responsibility to shepherd the flock of God under the shepherding of Christ Jesus. And the way that the elders or overseers shepherd the flock is by leading, feeding, and protecting the sheep. 
right? Overseers lead both by example and through the preaching and the teaching of the word. Uh, they feed the sheep by providing sound instruction from the word of God. Time and time again, Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, to be a worker who rightly handles the word of truth, to stand for truth and stand against false teaching. And so shepherds or overseers, they lead or they feed, I should say, through sound preaching and teaching of the word of God. And then they protect the sheep by protecting the sheep from false teaching, whether that comes from outside the church or from within it. And we see that happen in the New Testament in several places, right? In fact, in that conversation that Paul has with the elders at Ephesus, he warns them that from among their own number will raise up men speaking twisted things, seeking to lead the sheep astray. And then, of course, if you've read the book of Galatians, you know that Paul is absolutely livid with the churches of Galatia who have allowed false teaching to infiltrate their ranks coming from outside. And so false teaching can come from outside and it can come from inside. And the, the responsibility, the call, the duty of an overseer or a pastor or a shepherd over a flock is to protect the sheep, is to keep them safe from false teaching. The image that I have in my mind is uh, emblazoned there. And, and I, I've begun to realize as I've gotten older uh, that I learned 90% about what I know from life from Looney Tunes. And whether that was Bugs Bunny uh, teaching me things, whether that was an, an influx of classical music, uh, Looney Tunes is covered. I, I had no idea what the Barber of Seville was. And then I saw Bugs Bunny uh, trying to outwit Elmer Fudd. And all of a sudden, I know what the Barber of Seville is, right? Well, there's this one cartoon where you've got this big sheepdog and you've got this wolf or coyote that's always trying to get the sheep. Does anybody know this one that I'm talking about or I'm out on a limb here? Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate that. I see that hand, sister. Uh, and so the sheepdog has hair all over his face and you always think that he doesn't know what's going on, right? Because the hair comes down over his eyes and he's kind of stoic and he's up on the hill. And so this coyote or wolf, whatever he is, always thinks that he's got him outwitted. But at every time, the sheepdog comes in and crushes him. Whether that's, you know, with some elaborate scheme or whatever it is, he's ever vigilant, ever watching, keeping the sheep safe. And that's the impression, that's the idea that comes to my mind when I think of being an overseer and elder, is that you're ever vigilant, ever watchful, keeping the sheep safe, protecting them, leading them, and feeding them. We think of God's, uh, Christ's exhortation to Peter at the end of John. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you and care for my sheep. And so this office of elder or overseer is an office of, of leadership over the church to protect, to lead, to feed, and to care for God's people. The second office that Paul introduces there in verses 8 through 13 is that of deacon. Now, if we understand overseer as a position of leadership over the church, then I think it's right to understand deacon as a position of service within the church. Now, the word deacon is most easily understood as the word servant. And Paul uses this word frequently in a non-technical sense throughout all of his writings. Uh, he refers to himself as a servant. He refers to Timothy as a servant. He refers to Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, and others as servants of Christ and ministers of the gospel. Now, when we think about this office... <clears throat> there is actually little New Testament information concerning the office of deacon. Many scholars will point to Acts 6, and they will see the seven men that are chosen there as serving as proto-deacons. Uh, and in fact, much of what we understand and surmise about the office of deacon, I would argue, comes from that passage. 
However, if you look at the text in Acts chapter 6, those men are not called deacons and they're never referred to as deacons. Now, that does not mean that we are incorrect in looking at that passage, but what it does mean is that there is not much specific information to draw on. However, what we do know is that the early church had both overseers and deacons, right? Paul in his introduction to the church at Philippi, and that the titles that Paul uses there do, in fact, create sufficient differentiation such that we can say overseers exercise leadership, whereas deacons labor primarily to meet the physical needs of the body so that the overseers are freed up to labor in preaching and teaching and leading the sheep. And so Paul presents these two offices as he's instructing Timothy, as he is, and he's, as he says in just a few minutes, telling him how people ought to live and behave in the house of God, which is the church, right? And so he's telling Timothy that there's these two offices that are going to be there for the good of the people. There's the office of overseer and there's the office of deacon, each with unique roles and responsibilities to meet the needs of the congregation. And so that leads me to my second point this morning is that I want to consider real quickly the necessity of these offices. We might begin to think that these are not necessarily things that need to be present in order for the church to be the church, but I would argue that the Bible clearly states that these, things, these offices do need to be present in order for the church to be the church or to be, let's say, a functioning, healthy body. Paul communicates the necessity of overseers with the very first words of verse 1. Look at verse 1. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. This short intro here, the saying is trustworthy, is a phrase that Paul uses exclusively in the pastoral epistles. And it is used to underscore the importance of the truth of what is to follow. It gives the instruction that is coming a sense of seriousness and gravity such that we are called to pay attention to what Paul is saying here. So the appointment of overseers is not simply an issue of pragmatic wisdom to ensure that things are going the right direction, but it is one of biblical necessity. Right? Paul makes this clear, as we said, in Titus chapter 1, his other pastoral epistle, where he writes to Titus, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Right? For Paul to say that there were things that remained to be put in order is to say that there was something lacking in those churches such that it needed to be set right. And what was lacking and what needed to be set right is Titus needed to go and appoint biblically qualified leaders to shepherd those congregations. Paul could not leave them leaderless. Paul would not leave them leaderless. And he sends, Timothy, or sends Titus, I'm sorry, as his personal representative to go and appoint those leaders. The church needs leaders. It needs elders. It needs overseers. It needs pastors. In fact, Paul speaks in Ephesians of such men as gifts which Christ has given to his church for our maturation. Now, the truth is, sometimes we want to push against that. I would argue that at the root of all of us is this desire to be our own leader, to be our own shepherd, to be our own king. The lie that Satan promised in the garden is a lie that is still whispered in our ear every day. You shall be like God, meaning you shall be your own God. You shall run your own show. You shall say what you are to do. Now, the thing is, everybody loves, well, let me be cautious. Everybody likes leadership or will tolerate leadership until leadership starts to press on you, right? Everybody loves the boss who leaves them alone, right? The boss who just kind of sets you free and then never bothers you again. Nobody likes the boss that's constantly on you or, in fact, comes to you when you've done something wrong and calls you out for that thing. 
And that happens in the church oftentimes. People are, are willing to tolerate leaders, elders, overseers, pastors, until we come and we push on certain things in your life. And we say, hey, brother, sister, this thing right here, this is out of whack. This is out of line, right? Uh, I, I've been doing ministry. I've been in ministry long enough to encounter multiple situations like this. Uh, I, I think I shared one time, and I could do this because it was in another country, so it doesn't really matter. But when I first went to this church in Korea, I encountered a guy who was a, a Judaizer as we're preaching through Galatians. Right? As we're preaching through the book of Galatians, there's a guy in our church who's going around telling people they need to keep the dietary law if they really want to follow Jesus. And so, like, my first week, <laughs> my first week in, in uh, ministry in Korea, I have to go confront this guy who's calling me antinomian and anti-Semitic, which is kind of interesting, and I had to push on him and say, listen, you either shut your mouth or you leave. And he decided to leave, right? And everybody, everybody wants a leader or wants a shepherd, wants a pastor until the time comes when we need to push on each other, we need to press on each other, we need to encourage each other, we need to exhort each other, we need to hold each other accountable. But the truth is we need that. And I'm speaking as an elder, and I'm saying that even as an elder, I'm not above the other elders in that if I get out of line, if I get out of whack, I need men over me to call me out, to speak into my life and to say, brother, we love you, but you're out of whack here. You're out of line here. You're out of pocket here. You need to repent. You need to walk in righteousness. We need that. Christ knows we need that, so he gifted men and he gave men to his church. Paul knows the church needs that, so Paul's not just running around planting leaderless churches. Paul is laboring to ensure that the churches he's planting have biblically qualified leaders over them to shepherd them, to care for them, to pastor them, to feed them, to lead them, and to protect them. So churches are not churches if they're not being led by godly, uh, godly and biblically qualified and called men. Likewise, the necessity of deacons is communicated simply by the fact that Paul defines this position. Like Paul goes to great lengths to define this position, to include it in this exhortation to Timothy, and so we would argue that deacons are a necessary part of church leadership as well. Not to mention, again, what we read in Acts chapter 6. The seven men that are chosen are necessary for the function of the church to ensure that the needs of the church are met. And so for a church to be healthy, to be as healthy as it can be, it requires both overseers and deacons to lead and to serve the body. And so we see the roles, we see the responsibilities, we see the necessity, and now we can give the next 45 minutes to the qualifications. So the last thing I want to look at now is the qualifications that Paul gives or outlines for these offices. And we're going to look first at the office of overseer. So look with me at verses 1 through 7 again. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit or fall into the, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Just want to speak real quickly about that. Paul mentions the condemnation of the devil, and he mentions the snare of the devil. I would argue the condemnation of the devil is pride. 
What condemned the devil in his sin was pride. And so recent converts who are elevated to a position they should not be in are susceptible to falling victim to pride. Pride filling their hearts and therefore falling under the condemnation of the devil. The snare of the devil, I would argue, is the temptation and sin which so easily entangles us and ensnares us. And so there's a warning against pride and there's a warning against temptation there at the end. But looking at this office first, what we notice is that in verse 1, the kind of initial qualification that Paul gives for the office of overseer is a desire to do that task. Uh, in verse 1, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, that word aspire, right, means to strive for something, to reach out after that thing. Right? The office of overseer is not one that should be forced upon a man, but one that he himself desires to do. A good overseer is one who runs to the position and not away from it. One who desires to be in that role of responsibility. Let not many of you become teachers, brothers, knowing that we're held to a higher, uh, a higher uh, standard. Not one who runs from it, but one who runs to it. Uh, this finds support in what uh, Arnie read from 1 Peter this morning, where Peter says that an elder or an overseer is one who serves willingly, not under compulsion. This is an interesting thing because for many of us, we don't think about the idea of being forced to do something, uh, maybe especially within leadership of the church, but I teach this in Africa. We go over this text in Africa, and you'd be surprised how many men are pastoring churches because their pastor told them they should be a pastor, right? So you ask them, hey, how, tell me about how you got into ministry. And they're like, oh, my pastor had a vision, told me I should be a pastor, so now I'm a pastor. And you kind of, you kind of go, well, do you want to do this work? Like, are, are you eager to do this? Do you like to do this? And it's almost not a category that kind of comes into their mind. It's just kind of like, well, I was told to do it, so I do it. And, and I have to push back that a little bit against them with them and say, hey, brother, you know, like the first qualification Paul gives here is that you want to do this. Like you're aspiring to this thing. You see that responsibility. You see that role. And in seeing it, you, you want it. You long for it. You desire it. You're reaching out after it. And Paul says the one who does this, if they do this, they are desiring a good thing. They are longing for a good thing, right? Scripturally, the word desire can be used in a negative way. We have negative desires, right, that work against us, that wage war against us, that cause fights and quarrels among us. But aspiring, desiring the role of overseer, Paul says, is not an evil desire. It's not a wicked desire. It's desiring a noble task. And so Paul describes that, this task as a noble task or literally a good work. Right? The office of overseer is a good work. It is a noble task. It is a high calling. Right? This gives gravity to the work. It elevates the task, giving it a proper sense of importance that it should have. Being an elder or an overseer is no small thing. Now, the nobility of this role is further grounded in the necessary qualifications that Paul outlines in the following verses. As we move into verse 2, Paul writes that in light of the nobility of this role, it is necessary that an overseer be above reproach. There's two things that I want to see here in verse 2. That the first is the urgency with which Paul writes. Right? That little phrase, must be, uh, uh, communicates uh, a world of importance. As one commentator writes, this phrase, when used in the pastoral epistles, conveys moral and often divinely demanded necessity. So when Paul says it is necessary or it must be that an elder is above reproach, this isn't some mere suggestion. This isn't some kind of good idea that Paul kind of like worked up in his mind. This is a biblical divine requirement upon those who would aspire to this task. It's not only must be, it is absolutely necessary that they're above reproach. And the second thing to look at there is that phrase above reproach. 
I don't think we are out of bounds to see this as the overarching qualification that defines an overseer, such that what follows in the, in the verses after this serves to round out what it means for an elder to be above reproach. Now, what we need to understand is at the outset is that above reproach does not mean perfect. It does not mean sinlessly perfect, right? If that is what you are looking for, then good luck with that search. I don't think it's going to pan out real well. Because I would argue that <laughs> Arnie, myself, and Jeff, and Yost, we know ourselves well enough to know that we are not sinlessly perfect. And I would also argue that you know us well enough to know that we are not sinlessly perfect. So Paul is not saying that an elder needs to be perfect, but what he is saying is that an elder needs to live his life. It is necessary that he live his life in such a way that he is not open or subject to open accusation. Right? He lives in such a way that his life exemplifies Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we all have been called. Now, as we move on from there, what we quickly see is that the qualifications of an overseer are not rooted primarily in skill, but in character. Right? Determining whether or not a man is fit to be an overseer is not the same as determining whether or not a man is fit to be a mechanic. I think we all want mechanics of character, right? We're all hunting and searching for an honest mechanic. But an honest mechanic who has no idea how to fix a car is a useless mechanic. He's no good to us, right? We want a skilled mechanic. But when the author is telling, or when Paul is telling us about overseers, the primary responsibility is not some skill-based thing, but it is a character-based issue. So the qualifications of an, er of an uh, overseer are that he is the husband of one wife, right? He is faithful and committed in his relationships. He's sober-minded. He's self-controlled, right? He's not given to outbursts, but is able to control his emotions. He's respectable and hospitable. He is well thought of, and he's eager to know those who he leads and loves and shepherds. He's not a drunkard or violent. He's not a man who is driven by his passions, but he is one who is gentle and peaceable. He's not a lover of money. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he's not serving for shameful gain. Believe it or not, there are men who take the role of elder, overseer, or pastor simply for what it can do for their pockets. Paul says that's deplorable. He's one who leads his household well to the glory of God, one who has experience in the faith and is well thought of by those outside of the church. Paul says this is the character of a man who should lead and shepherd and care for God's people. Now, there is one skill-centered qualification that Paul does give in this text, and that is the ability to teach. Overseers, if they are going to lead, if they are going to feed, and if they are going to protect the sheep, then they are to be men who are able to rightly divide the word of truth, men who are able to understand the word and communicate the word in such a way that it is helpful and edifying and encouraging for the people of God so that we all might grow in maturity, so we all right, might reach the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ, no longer being children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but standing firm in the truth, speaking the truth to one another in love. And so an overseer has to be able to communicate the word of God, to make it known to the people, to apply it to their hearts so they might know how to live as Christ has called us to live. As you move into verse 8, Paul does not create a stark contrast between these two offices, but he continues with his exhortation. Look at me at verses 8 through 13. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. <coughs> and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, sober faithful in all things. 
Let's let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul connects these two uh, with that word likewise, right? That word likewise in verse 8, Paul is telling us that he's not creating some stark contrast here. There's not a, a real uh, uh, deep difference between the, the qualifications or the expectations of these two offices. And, and that becomes clear as we read through the qualifications of a deacon. We see a lot of crossover there. We see a lot of similarity between what's expected of an elder and what's expected of a deacon, uh, most notably being the husband of one wife. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about overseas. Um, that's something we generally don't deal with here. I'm pretty sure if you're married in here, all of you only have one wife. Just doing a quick survey of the room, and it seems that way. When I go to Africa, I go to a lot of places where their polygamy is still an issue, a big issue. I remember my first trip to Africa. I went to Uganda, and I got in the car uh, with the, uh, the taxi driver, and I'm just chatting with the taxi driver. And, uh, telling him about my family. I said, tell me about your family. I said, uh, yeah, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And I kid you not, he said somewhere in the neighborhood, I think it was like 20 or 29. And I'm going, all right, that's a super productive dad. How do you have 29 siblings? He's like, oh, well, my dad has nine wives. And you're thinking, all right, that's really interesting as well. Now that, like, and he's not, this guy wasn't a believer, and you're thinking, okay, that, 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 that's a cultural thing that's, that's in this culture. Certainly it doesn't show up in the church. Well, guess what? It does show up in the church as well. So I was sitting, this was uh, not this time, but last year I was sitting, and we spent no less than 45 minutes going over this issue of a husband of one wife. Because they would say to me, well, certainly if a man has five wives, he can't be an elder, right? They can do math. But if he's willing to divorce four of them to get down to one wife, then we'll let him be an elder. And I was like, that's an interesting way to do things, right? So he's got five wives, so now let's encourage him to get rid of four, keep your favorite, and then you can be an elder. And it was such a process. It was such a process for them to think through that and to reason through that. And yet Paul is writing Paul's writing to a society not far removed from that kind of society. Uh, the idea of polygamy and multiple wives, I mean, we see it in the scriptures. How many wives did Solomon have? Talk about narrowing from a thousand down to your favorite one. That's a big thing, right? But Paul, but Paul says they need to be the husband of one wife, right? And now, again, I want to say as an aside, too, that doesn't necessarily mean that an elder or a deacon has to be married. It does not require marriage, but it means that in marriage, they are faithful in that marriage. They are faithful in that relationship, and they are committed to their relationships. And so it's interesting to see how these issues, sometimes that we just quickly glance over or read over, are really poignant and powerful for people in other contexts and other cultures to think through and try to process what that looks like. When we look at the qualifications of a deacon, there are two that do stand out as unique among deacons. And that would be um, the fact that deacons are uh, called, I'm sorry, one second. Oh, there we are. I, I lost where I was in my notes. I apologize. Uh, there are two points that stand out in these verses, and that is, one, the lack of mention of teaching. Uh, Paul says that elders are to be able to teach, but the same requirement is not levied upon deacons. And we would argue that that is because deacons don't exercise their position in the same way. Elders are called to exercise their position mainly through the preaching and the teaching and the, and the administration of the word of Christ, whereas deacons are called primarily to exercise their, their uh, ministry within the acts of service to the body. Uh, the second is that with deacons there is mention of the wives. Uh, Paul says in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Uh, this verse 
uh, receives different um, understanding or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, interpretation uh, in different contexts throughout history. Uh, I think one of the easiest ways to understand it is the reason Paul addresses the wives of deacons is because it's far more likely that the wives of deacons would be involved in the ministry of their husbands than the wives of elders would be involved in the ministry of their husbands. If Paul in the church says that the office of elder or overseer is reserved for men, and they are called to be the primary leaders and preachers and teachers in the church, then it makes sense that Paul would address them directly. And if women, uh, if uh, deacons are not leading through the preaching and the teaching of the word, but are meeting the needs of the people, are addressing the physical needs of the people within the church, then it makes sense that there would be times that their wives are brought into that ministry, are a part of that ministry, and their wives likewise must be examples of Christ-like character as well. And so as we look at these two offices, the qualifications together paint this picture of men who are called to set examples of Christ-like character as they carry out their ministries within the church. And so what I want to just address as we, as we close this morning is that these qualifications, as we read through them and as we heard them, there is nothing in these verses that is unique to elders and deacons alone. Sometimes we get the idea maybe or the impression that elders and deacons are called to be kind of like these super Christians who are kind of like, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're the five tool players who are knocking everything out of the park. And they're like, they're just kind of like these, these, these people that are on another level from everybody else. But the reality is, is that everything an elder is called to be, everything a deacon is called to be is what the church is called to be. We are all called in Christ Jesus to be above reproach. Right? That's not a unique qualification for an elder. The way that it's unique in the life of the elder is that the elder is called to be an example of that. Right? The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 13, he says, consider the life of your, your leaders. Look to your leaders. Consider their life and imitate their faith. Imitate their way of living. Leaders are meant to primarily set this example before the church of what it looks like to pursue Christ Jesus. And in doing that, the best leaders are continually pointing away from themselves and pointing all of us to Christ Jesus. Like my role as an elder and overseer is not for you to like gawk at me, as handsome as I might be. Uh, my wife hates the hair. I told her I was going to get a haircut soon. So for all of you who are, are lamenting it as well, it's coming soon, right? But it's not to drive attention towards me. It's to drive attention towards Christ, who Peter himself calls the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So the qualifications that Paul gives here are meant to be exemplified in leaders such that together all of us see what it looks like to pursue Christ and all of us are having our eyes uh, pointed continually to the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important that Paul communicates that to Timothy. That's why it's so important that Paul communicates this to the church. That's so important that we read it and we understand it and we know what the expectations are because this is not, this, we're, not we're not meddling with little things here. Right? We're, we're dealing with the heart of the gospel. We're dealing with the, the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus that as the church is doing what it's called to do, as the church is led as it's called to let, be led, as the church is serving as it's called to be served, what's happening is not that we are being glorified in that or we are being exemplified in that. What's happening is Christ is being glorified in that. That's why it's so vital what Paul is saying here. I, I want to read you something from Ephesians uh, that, that, that will help hopefully shape, shape our thoughts and our understandings here of, of what God is doing in the church. And, 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 this, and this, understanding this, ma'am, could you please get your baby to stop crying? 
Um, some people. When, when we read this and when we hear this, what's, what's funny is if anybody watches this later on like YouTube or something, like, that guy is horribly mean. It's my wife. I was just joking with my wife. We, we, would, we need to have, I, I think we need to have a, a proper understanding of what God is doing, okay, with, with it. Look, look around the room real quick. This, this is the church, right? Paul's giving Timothy instruction about the church, how the church is to be led, how it's to be served, how it's to be shepherded, right? And, and sometimes we, we become rather myopic. And, it, and it's easy, right? We've got a leaking roof and all these things. And it's easy to start focusing on our own needs, our own concerns, and to miss the big picture of what God is doing through the church and in the world. And, and so Paul writes to the church and um, in Ephesians chapter 3, this, this is what he says. This, drink this in, brothers and sisters. Drink this in. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of, the, of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has been made known to the sons of men in other generations as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Did you hear what Paul said there? Paul said there's a mystery hidden. A mystery hidden that, that, that now God has made revealed. He, he, he's, it was there. The truth was there. It was, it was hidden. It was, it was cloaked. It was disguised. And now God's revealed it. And he's made it fully known. He's pulled back the curtain to show the greatness of what he's doing. And the greatness of what he is doing is that Gentiles, we are now fellow heirs with Jews in Christ Jesus, brought into the body, right? Brought into the body. So there's now one new man, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. There's now one new man in Christ Jesus. Both of us reconciled to God through Christ Jesus because Christ through the cross, has broken down the wall of hostility. He's broken down that, that, that anger and that animosity. He's brought us together. And now, what is God doing with this one new man that Christ is unified and that Christ is brought together in the church? What is God doing? He's declaring through the church his manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He, God, is using the church, us, to declare his greatness, his glory, his wisdom, his power, his majesty, his might, his, his glory, not just to the world around us, but on a cosmic level, he's making known his greatness and his glory through the church. So then you tell me how important it is that we heed the exhortation of Paul as he's writing to Timothy of how people ought to live and function within the local church. It is of eternal cosmic significance because we are not messing with little things here. We are dealing in the glory of God on display to the nations, to the cosmic powers and rulers. Praise God. So let us walk in obedience. 
Let us look to the leaders who God has put over us. Let us emulate their faith. Let us all strive to live in Christ-like character, to be above reproach, so that the glory of God might shine out from us to the ends of the earth and into the, the rulers and principalities in heavenly places. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for Christ Jesus. We praise you and thank you for the church. We thank you, Father, for revealing this mystery, for unifying, making one through Christ Jesus. Help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk in humility. Father, I, I, I pray selfishly for myself. I pray for Arnie. I pray for Jeff as we seek to lead and to love this congregation. Father, that we might be faithful men, that we might be found faithful. Lord, I pray for Ben. I, I pray for Jeremiah. I pray for Nick as they serve as deacons in this congregation. May they be men of character. May they be found worthy. May you be at work in us, Father, for the good of your church and for your glory, we pray, so that all of us together, Father, might strive after Christ-like character and so display your wisdom and your glory to the ends of the earth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.